ministry. All right, Matthew 26 is where we're going to be headed. So if you want to take out your Bibles and make your way that direction, we'll be in the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. Now, as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you where we're at in uh, Matthew's account. We are in the middle of this section known as the rejection of the king is what we've titled this. But essentially, we're in the middle of the Passion Week. This is the final week in the life of Jesus. And it began in chapter 21 with his triumphal entry. He comes into the city of Jerusalem, and the people uh, don't begin to reject him. They actually celebrate him. They cry out, Hosanna in the streets, which just means, save now, we pray. And they were excited about Jesus coming into Jerusalem because they were certain he was coming in to lay the smack down on the Romans. He's going to drive out our enemies. He's going to establish his kingdom here on earth. They were excited about this. But Jesus didn't go directly to the Romans as he comes in in chapter 21. But in fact, the first place he goes is the temple, into the house of God. And what he finds is people being taken advantage of by the religious leaders. And he begins to turn over tables. He runs off the money changers. And so uh, as a little sidebar, uh, this is a reminder to us as we look at God's uh, judgment. Do you know where he's going to start? It's actually in his own house. <laughs> he's going to clean house in his own house first before he takes care of anyone else. So uh, not to put too much of a damper on things, but that's where Jesus starts. He begins with his people being taken advantage of. God is not going to stand for that. And so he goes in, he cleanses the temple, which leads these uh, religious leaders to ask Jesus an important question. Hey, by the way, who gave you the authority to do that? And so they ask him, who, by whose authority do you operate? And Jesus doesn't give them one answer. He gives them three answers. And he tells them in chapter 22, I get my authority from the Father and from the Son and from the Holy Spirit. He gives them three different uh, stories to highlight this. And so uh, chapter 22 then, they also come to him and they begin to question him. The, these political and religious leaders led by the Herodians along with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they question Jesus. They want to know things about him. They want to know where he came from. And so they, they come to him with these questions. They essentially cross-examine him, not realizing that as they did that, they were in fact fulfilling prophecy. The prophecy that spoke of the Passover lamb, that when you bring the lamb into the house on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, which would also line up with uh, Palm Sunday in this case, that for four days the lamb was to be examined or made sure that it was perfect before the lamb could be slain uh, for the sins of the people. And so this is precisely what they were participating in, even though they had no knowledge of it. Now then, in chapter 23, we see Jesus uh, turns the tables again on them, only this time it's spiritually, not just physically like he did back in chapter 21. He actually pronounces woes upon these religious leaders. That because of your uh, not following my commands, your lack of obedience, because you've actually taken advantage of my people, here's what it's going to look like for you. And so he gives them these list of woes, which actually correlate to uh, the list of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Here's the blessings that you get if you follow what I'm telling you to do. Here's the curses you get if you do not follow. And so we went through that in chapter 23. Now, Jesus pronounces these cursings in Matthew 23, leading his disciples to, in Matthew 24, come to him and say, hey, um, this all sounds kind of scary. 
when is this going to happen? Can you give us a little bit of insight to when this is going to take place? And so Matthew 24 and 25, we have what's known as the Olivet Discourse, which is essentially Jesus' final teaching recorded in Matthew. There's a later one recorded in John at the Last Supper. But in Matthew's account, this is the last teaching of Jesus we have, and he lays out for them what the end times are going to look like. This is when all these things are going to take place. This is how it's all going to wrap up. And so that is where we ended last week, was on the final teaching of Jesus there in Matthew 25. Now, all that brings us to Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. And we read, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so Jesus here highlights that the Passover is now uh, coming up. This is one of the big three festivals or the big three feasts for the Jewish people. Now these big three feasts would happen uh, at, at times where the Jewish males were supposed to go back to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate. And the big three were a uh, Passover, which were uh, included the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. And uh, Pentecost was the second big feast. It happened 50 days after Passover, hence the word Penta. And then the last was the Feast of Trumpus, which actually began the fall feast, the final set of feasts for the Jewish people. Now, interestingly enough, I know how much you guys love the book of Leviticus. If you go back to Leviticus 23, what you see is God instituting through Moses these seven different feasts. And what he says there in verse 1, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And so the Jewish people would celebrate these feasts, these times to come together and hang out. But what God says in Leviticus 23 is, These are mine. And he goes on to call them holy convocations. Now, convocation isn't a word we use in our everyday vernacular, but what it means in our language is rehearsals. These are holy rehearsals. Now, you all know if you go to a rehearsal, the only reason we would put up with, say, a wedding rehearsal is what? So that we can go to the real deal. Ain't nobody going to a wedding rehearsal unless you get to the actual wedding event. So what the Lord is saying through the pen of Moses is you're going to have these holy convocations, these holy practices, but there is going to be a real event. There is going to be an actual fulfillment of these feasts. So in the life of Jesus, what we find is that in his first coming, that he actually not only attended these feasts, but he was the fulfillment of these spring feasts during his first coming. And so we've just gone through that Jesus arrived at the 10th day of the month of Nisan on Palm Sunday, and then uh, four days later, on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, that's Passover, he was sacrificed there as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus actually became the Passover Lamb on Passover. He fulfilled the obligation that started 1,500 years before at the pen of Moses. Now, he was buried then that following day, just a few hours later. But remember, their days started over at 6 p.m. So the reason Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea had to scramble and get his body in the ground was because it was coming upon the Sabbath. It began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So here's Jesus, who said of himself, 
I am the bread of life. He, he referred to his body as the bread of life who was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You remember through our Old Testament uh, studies, what we found is that leaven is always a picture of sin in the Old Testament. So the body that was without sin was buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now then, three days later is the Feast of first fruits, And what happened three days later was resurrection morning. That Jesus, who Paul says in 1 Corinthians is the first fruits of the resurrection, was resurrected on the Feast of first fruits. Now, not to say that any of this couldn't have been coincidence, except 50 days later, on the Feast of Pentecost, what we have is the Holy Spirit actually given to the church on the Feast of Pentecost. The church age actually began there on that day. The the Holy Spirit came down on that room of people, and the church was ignited, and 3,000 people were saved that day. The harvest began that day. And that kicks off this period of the harvest festival, or the the summer of harvest. What we've seen over the last 2,000 years is people coming to know Christ, the harvest taking place, progressing through. And I share all that to say that if Jesus was the fulfillment of these spring feasts at his first coming, I believe that his second coming, he will fulfill the fall feasts, which begin with the Feast of Trumpets as he comes back at the sound of the trumpet. And interestingly enough, this Feast of Trumpets, known as uh, Rosh Hashanah, it had to take place during the first new moon of the season. Now, they didn't have uh, all the technology we have. They couldn't exactly tell when the first new moon was going to be, and so they would celebrate the feast over two or three days just to make sure they got the first new moon covered, which meant the feast began to be known as uh, the feast in which the day and the hour are not known. This is in their Jewish tradition. And so we see Jesus uh, coming back during the Feast of Trumpets. He then uh, sits upon his throne at the Feast of uh, Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was the day the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sin of the people. And that's what I believe is the day that Jesus will sit upon his throne right there in the Holy of Holies for all to see and establish his kingdom on earth, setting up the millennial kingdom which is reflected in the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the time where people would actually look back at their journey through the wilderness and reflect upon God's goodness. And that's what we're going to see through the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, where people are able to live with God, one with Him, but able to reflect back upon His goodness. So a little sidebar, but we see the significance of the Feast of Passover that Jesus is coming to truly fulfill at His first coming. Now, Verse 3, we see, And then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Remember, they'd already tried to legitimately accuse him. They couldn't do that, so they plot to trick him and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Remember, the city of Jerusalem had swollen to two and a half to three million people, ten times its normal size, and they did not want Jesus to be crucified on Passover. And yet what we find is the word of God always stands. He was going to be the Passover lamb, whether they liked it or not. So they were actually trying not to kill Jesus on the Passover, but they they had no say against the word of God. And so they began to plot and try to figure out how they might take Jesus And the people doing the plotting were, uh, Caiaphas is mentioned here, 
Now, you might uh, notice as you read through your New Testament, there's another high priest mentioned, a guy named Annas. The reason for that is because Caiaphas was actually appointed as high priest by Rome. But this wasn't a political appointment. This was supposed to be a family appointment. You had to be a son of Aaron in order to be high priest, and that was given to a guy named Annas. But all this was all within the family because Caiaphas is actually Annas's son-in-law. And so what we find, and the reason I share that is, the real reason these guys were upset is that, do you know who was running all the temple activities? Everything that was taking place in the temple itself was the high priest and his family. And so as Jesus goes in and turns over tables and he drives off money changers, whose pockets was he actually affecting but Annas and Caiaphas and all of their family? And so the real anger that was generated at Jesus wasn't because of a religion. It wasn't because of theology. It's because he hit them right square in the wallet. It's amazing how men never really change, right? Evil, greedy men are the same throughout human history. And so these guys want Jesus dead because he's messing up their money game. And so they begin to plot how can they take him and kill him. Now, meanwhile, back in Bethany, verse 6, and when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. And so we see that Jesus is now going back to this town of Bethany. This is where he was staying during the Passover with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Those names are probably familiar to you. So he was staying with his friends a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and he goes to a dinner party at a, a house of a guy named Simon the leper. Now if you stop right there, um, if Jesus was to attend a dinner party, why in the world would he go to a leper's house? I mean, that would make him unclean. He wouldn't be able to attend the feast. But the reality is, uh, this was Simon the artist formerly known as a leper. This was no doubt someone that Jesus had already healed in the past. And so they still call him. Uh, Jesus likes nicknames. I love that about Jesus. He called James and John the sons of thunder because of their thundery attitude. He also called uh, Peter, whose real name was Simon, Peter, because he said, you're like a rockhead. I'm going to call you Petros. Peter, you're like a little stone. And so, no doubt, Simon the leper is going to be forever known as Simon the leper, but he didn't have leprosy any longer. So here's Jesus sitting at a dinner party, and what happens is a woman comes up behind him and dumps uh, oil upon his head, anoints his head. And we're told in uh, Mark chapter 14 that it was a flask of a spikenard. It's a particular kind of expensive uh, perfume that she dumped upon his head. And Mark's account says that she actually broke the flask and poured it out on top of him. Now in John's account, uh, John actually tells us the identity of this woman, that this was none other than Mary, the sister to Martha, the sister to Lazarus. And so this is uh, the same Mary, by the way, that we find throughout the New Testament, always at the feet of Jesus. Boy, if you want to find someone to uh, emulate your life after, Mary continuously finds herself at the feet of Jesus. In Luke uh, chapter 10, turn there for you quickly. We see Mary, the first time we come across her in verse 39 as Jesus is going to a dinner party at Mary and Martha's house, Martha's working behind the scenes and in verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his word. 
And so the first time we see her is sitting at the feet of Jesus to hear his words, to hear the words that he was sharing. Now the second time we see her is in John chapter 11, verse 32. And in this incident, uh, this was where her brother Lazarus had actually died. They'd sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Come now quickly so you can uh, pray over our brother and he might be saved. And what Jesus did was uh, not come quickly. <laughs> he, he did the opposite. He took his sweet time and her brother uh, died. Now, anybody ever have uh, Jesus take his time with one of your prayer requests? Probably none of you guys. But, but Mary had that situation take place. And so in verse 32, And when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell down at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so we see her the second time coming to the feet of Jesus, lamenting at his feet. She's, she's torn up, and yet she doesn't just get angry and run away. She takes it back to the feet of Jesus. So the first time is to hear his word. The second time is to actually weep at his feet. And then thirdly, we see in verse 3 of chapter 12 of John, and then Mary took a pound of very costly spikenard, anointing the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And so the third time we see Mary is worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And so hearing the word of Jesus will lead you oftentimes to actually be broken and crying and upset with your situation. This is the spot Mary was found in her second time. But then she was amazed at what she saw as Jesus raised her brother from the dead. And when we get to truly see Jesus, it leaves us in a spot of amazement. And when we're in that place of amazement, the next reaction is worship. And that's the spot Mary's in now. She is worshiping at the feet of Jesus as she wipes his hair or wipes his feet with her hair. Now then in verse, uh, verse 8, excuse me. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. And so the oil, we're told in John's account, was worth somewhere around 300 denarii. A denarii is a day's wages. And so this, is worth, this oil was worth somewhere around 300 days' wages. That's over a year's worth of labor if you factor in a 250-day work year. And so a very expensive worship session is what Mary just had. And, and so I wanted to share this with you that for people that don't understand worship, it always seems costly. When they don't get it, it always seems like, boy, that costs entirely too much. Now, in John's account, what we find is uh, Judas was actually the one that was stirring up the disciples. Uh, verse 4 of John 12 says, uh, And I say to you, uh, my excuse me, that's Luke. Let's go to John. That's going to make way more sense to you if you go to John. John chapter 12, verse 4 says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why this fragrant oil was not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take, that, he used to take what was put in it. And so the real person stirring everybody up was Judas, who was a thief. He had his hand in the till, if you will. And so what we find is that Jesus actually refers to Judas as the son of perdition, and that word of perdition could be translated waste. And so the person who looks at Mary and says, what a waste, 
was actually wasting his relationship with Jesus himself. And so going back to the situation at hand, we find Mary breaking the vessel over the head of Jesus. And I want to share with you that oftentimes true worship comes when we're broken. It comes in a place of brokenness. And the second thing about worship is oftentimes true worship is costly. For Mary in this spot, she literally took her 401k, she took her savings account, and she dumped it over the head of Jesus. This was everything she'd saved up. Her, her entire retirement was just poured out on the head of Jesus. But yet she did not look around and think, boy, I wonder what others think of me right now. She was solely focused on worshiping him and honoring him. And so often what I find is when we struggle to truly worship, we begin to say things like, boy, I wonder what other people would think. I mean, if I really worshiped, I wonder what other people would say. And this is a particular uh, difficulty for, for men. Let's just face it. Like when it comes to just singing out loud, praising the Lord uh, out loud, this is, this is one of those actions that seems far too costly. I, I'm not going to be able to praise in that way. And for me, at least, I had a whole litany of excuses. Uh, I can't sing. I don't like the tempo. I don't like that song. Uh, you know, I, I don't care for the worship. I like hymns. I like contemporary. I had a whole list of reasons why I would not sing in church. And then finally what I learned I could do is I could just move my mouth up and down like this. And then my wife would get off my case for not singing in worship for a little bit. And so the reality is, uh, for me, it, it looked too costly. I mean, if I saw a man raising his hands in worship too, I mean, woo, you talk about some kind of weird Jesus freak. Like, what is that person's problem? This is what's going on, at least in my head. None of you guys are all more holy than I am, so you probably didn't think that. But that's the reality. It feels like it's too costly. And I will tell you, just a few years ago, about five years ago, was our second Sunday, maybe our third at Parkland Chapel, just getting back into the church for the first time in years. And we were there. We went to early service, the 9 o'clock, because they didn't offer a children's church at the 9 o'clock service. And I was convinced that, look, these Christians are weirdos. Who knows what they're going to do with their kids. Let's go to the 9 o'clock. That way we don't have to take them to children's church. That was, that was, this is where I'm at spiritually. And I remember standing there uh, in worship, standing up, the lights are dim, and, and looking at the front, and there's a guy that we met the first week. His name was Dave Williams, and he was there with his wife and his two little girls. And, and here's a, a guy that I knew was a professional. He was uh, pretty high up at the gas company in St. Louis. And so I, I kind of had this internal respect for him. And I look, and he's got his head back. He's looking up to heaven, and his hands are out, and he's just singing to Jesus. He wasn't worried about <laughs> if I'm watching him. He wasn't worried about what his family even thought. He was just simply worshiping. And, and the reality is I looked at him, and, and I was thinking some things in my head, but it wasn't what I'd thought before. Because I look over at my wife, and she's watching him too, and I knew that she was thinking what I was thinking. And that was, that's a real man. That's a real man. And I wanted to be like that but I didn't know how to even begin. Like, how, how do I get to a place where I can actually worship? And so the truth was I had to actually be broken. 
I had to let myself go. It was going to cost me something. It was going to cost me some pride. I was going to have to put it on the shelf a little bit in order to truly worship. And beyond that, I was going to have to very much like what Mary did. Notice with me, Mary got down on the floor and she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. Do you know what would have happened is she wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair as the oil ran down his head? She would have smelled like Jesus. You see, the issue was I was afraid that I would smell like Jesus. So for Mary, she was not in that spot. And, and I want to encourage you guys because as you go around and you interact with people, the more you are willing to literally wipe his feet with your hair, the more you're willing to smell like him, uh, it will cost you. It will probably cost you friends. And the reason for that, in part, is covered by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says to them there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We're the fragrance of Christ to people, whether they're being saved or whether they're dying. But in verse 16, he says, To the one, we're the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, we're the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? You see, to some people that you interact with, as you begin to truly smell like Jesus, they're going to want to have nothing to do with you because you, uh, in the old King James, you stinketh. You stinketh like death. You smell of death to them. What you are are actually a reminder of where they're headed. <laughs> and they don't want to be any part of it. But yet to others, to those that get it, to those that want to get it, there, there are going to be people that sit and watch you worship. We're not worshiping for those people, by the way. I want to encourage you to worship to Jesus and him alone. Don't think about other people that are looking around. But the truth is there are going to be people like me. They're going to be looking at people like I did towards uh, my friend Dave. And they're going to be looking and, and seeing what they do, and there's going to be something sparked in there. They're going to want to know what it's like to have life, to have hope. That's a fragrance they're going to want to smell like. And so this was Mary. She smelled like Jesus. Now then in verse 10, but when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but for me you do not have always. For in the pouring of this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. And assuredly I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, this woman has done what this woman has done will also be told to her as a memorial. And here we are, 2,000 years later, <laughs> we're reading about Mary as a memorial. Jesus' words very much coming to pass. What we find is that Mary uh, did this, though, for Jesus, um, not to have the attention upon her, but for his burial. She was actually anointing him with this horn of oil. And by the way, it wasn't just a little bit of oil. When they would come in to anoint someone with oil in the Old Testament, they weren't just doing the little drop, drop, like what, if, uh, by the way, if you ever want me to pray for you and anoint you with oil, I've got some awesome anointing oils from Jerusalem, very cool, but I'm not going to go uh, pouring them over your head like a Gatorade bucket. That's essentially what they would do in the Old Testament. I mean, they said the oil would run off of Aaron's beard and drip off of his beard. I mean, kind of gross. But 
the idea is a lot of oil. So the reason Mary has to mop it up with her hair is because it was running down Jesus' head. She poured it on there, and she was doing it. Spikenard was particularly a fragrance that was used for burial. It was used for bodies so they would not smell. And so the reality is Mary, more than any of these other disciples, she was listening to what Jesus was saying. They were busy arguing about who was going to be number one in the kingdom, who was going to be the top disciple, and yet Mary was truly listening to what Jesus' words were saying, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to die. But she also knew her Old Testament. She knew that verses like Psalm 49.9 say that he would not go to the pit. He would not see corruption. In other words, she understood that he would be resurrected. So here's the thing. If you want to anoint Jesus for burial, what she knew is you better get on it because he ain't going to be buried for long. So she goes ahead of time and says, look, I'm going to anoint him before he's ever even crucified because she understood she had revelation. And that's the other thing I want to share with you about worship, that true worship will lead to revelation. If you're in a spot of really worshiping, it doesn't matter if it's in your car, if it's in your room by yourself or right here in this place. I hate to tell you how many times people get revelation from the Lord. They get direction from the Lord in worship. And this is Mary in this spot. Now then, verse 14. And then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests. And he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted, uh, they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so we see for Judas, um, this was essentially the last straw for him. He, he had had enough of the Jesus game. Now, interestingly enough, his name, Judas, is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Judah. And the name Judah means praise. <laughs> And so this man that's criticizing the praise of Mary, his name means praise, and yet he refused to praise, and because of that, it led to his demise. His refusal to praise the Lord was his undoing. Now, his uh, name isn't Judas Iscariot. Iscariot gives us an indicator of where he was from. It was Judas from a place called Kerioth, which is close to Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? It's because the area of Jerusalem, this area of southern Judea, is where the educated people were. It's where the wealthy people were. Judas is the only one of the disciples not to come from the north. All the other 11 came from the northern area, the redneck area. It was like the Coles County of Israel, right? I mean, them all just talked a little bit like this, and then they get up there to the north. And that's why they could identify Peter at Jesus' trial. They said, hey, you sound like a Galilean. They're like, you sound like a redneck. Like, we know who you are. You're with Jesus. Judas, though, was the only one that did not sound like that, but also he was the only one that would have been educated. So this is the reason they gave him the money back. Like, look, you're the guy with all the, the degrees. We're going to give this to you. And yet his problem was uh, Jesus didn't turn out the way he thought he would. And so he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a a common slave. If you go back to Deuteronomy, if one of your oxen gored another man's servant, what you were to do was give him 30 pieces of silver to make up for the servant that you had inadvertently killed. And so we see Jesus sold for the price of a slave. But it all boils down to Jesus did not live up to what Judas thought he was going to be. He thought he was going to come in and be a king. He was going to rule and reign. 
and yet he did not. And so I bring that up to say, I think oftentimes we have these perceptions of what Jesus is going to be, what he is going to do in our lives, how he's going to operate. And then if we're not careful, we put all these notions to what Jesus might be. We put them on our marriage. We put them on our career. We put them upon our kids. We layer it up to all these things that he's going to do. And then when he does not fulfill them, what do we do? At least for me, I am too quick to sell him out. <laughs> I am too quick, and, and not even for 30 pieces. I mean, people sell Jesus out for things way worse. I mean, just go sometime to Walmart to the $5 movie bin. I mean, you see people literally going through there in the $5 movie bin of life, and they are selling their soul for anything they can get their hands on, whatever they can do to watch and just be numb. I don't want to think about this thing any longer. I want you to entertain me. And I think oftentimes we end up in the $5 movie bin of life because Jesus didn't add up to what we thought he was going to. Now then in verse 17, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you? Excuse me. Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said to them, in verse 18, Go into the city, and a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. In verse 19, And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed, and they prepared the Passover. And so they, they come to Jesus, the disciples do, and they say, Where do you want us to eat dinner at tonight for the Passover? And he directs them to go into the city and to just find a random man, and when you find him, say, hey, we're going to eat at your house tonight. And this unnamed person is going to be like, okay, come on in. I mean, what an odd uh, situation. But what we find in Mark's account is Jesus gave him a little more direction than that. He says, go into town and find a man who's carrying water. Find a man with a water pitcher on his head. That's your guy. You're going to his house tonight. Now, this, again, doesn't connect with us in our culture, except what you would realize if you go overseas is... Guys don't carry water, ever. The women, by the way, do almost all the work in most foreign countries, especially third world countries and in the Middle East, so the women would be the one carrying the water. And so what Jesus is saying, go find a dude who's wearing a purse. That's essentially what he's saying. Like, go find a guy with a man bag, the Merce, which, by the way, never really took off. I mean, Joey was hoping from friends that the man bag was going to take off uh, in society, and yet here we are today. Well... There probably are way more guys carrying purses, than, but that's another story. And I'm going to get myself in trouble if I go down that route. So I'm going to redirect and say, uh, most guys don't carry a purse. And that's what Jesus is saying. Go to this unnamed man, because we're going to go eat at his house today. And what I love is that this man's name is never given to us. But you know who knew him? Jesus knew him. Jesus knew exactly who that guy was and what he was going to do for him, and how he was going to provide for him. And so here's the reality, is that if you ever think that something you're doing for Jesus is not being recognized by him, that maybe it's being forgotten about, I want to assure you, he always knows. He sees everything that you and I do for him. It is always known. Matthew 6, 6 covers that, that the things that are done on earth will be revealed in heaven. There's going to come a time where it's going to be revealed who this man was and what he did. Now in verse 20, and when the evening had come, he sat down with the twelve, 
Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Now, now notice with me, um, Jesus has stated, uh, one of you will betray me. Who did they immediately think about? Themselves, right? Immediately the attention turned to, was it me? I hope it's not me. Now, I, I share that with you to say that if you are ever in a spot where you share something difficult with someone, and, and you begin to think every time you have a conversation with them that they're pulling that back up in their memory, that they're remembering whatever hard thing was that you'd shared, whatever difficulty, maybe it's embarrassing. Uh, maybe you shared it even with me. And you go, boy, every time he gives a message, I know he's thinking about that. I want to tell you that people are never thinking about you. You know who they're thinking about? Themselves. And so if you're ever concerned about that, and I'm sitting up here sharing a message like, oh, I bet he's thinking about me. I bet he's thinking about my sin. You, you, you know whose sin I'm thinking about? Angela's. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> not, not really. I'm going to have to erase that from the tape here in a minute. So I'm thinking about mine. I'm thinking about my sin. Like, man, I really messed up this week. And so I want to encourage you not to let those thoughts permeate your mind. Don't get trapped up. Satan wants you to think people are always thinking about you. Just like the disciples, man, they're focused in on themselves. Now then, verse 23. He, who had, he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. And so Judas recognizes. He knew precisely who Jesus was talking about. And yet I wanted to just quickly share with you that the Lord's Supper um, it didn't look like the painting, by the way. The painting of the Lord's Supper with everybody in a line. That the, the supper table would have looked like a traditional Middle Eastern supper table, which was U-shaped, giving room for the servants to come in and lay out the food. But then the people all ordered uh, somewhat like this. And now you probably can't see the screen, uh, but the reality of it is we're told in John's account that John laid his head upon Jesus. People would always uh, lean to the left, and so John's head would have rested upon Jesus. He would have sat at Jesus' right. And what Jesus shares with us here is that whoever dips their bread with me, you would always dip your bread to the left. So Judas would have shared a bowl of oil with Jesus that they would have dipped their bread in together. Now the seat to the left of the host, too, by the way, is the seat of honor. If you're seated to the left of the host because you get to share a dipping bowl with him, you are considered the guest of honor. And this is where Jesus placed Judas. So I think about this, and I'm thinking about Judas. I mean, Jesus went away for an entire evening to pray about these 12 men. He made no mistakes whatsoever, right? Jesus was perfect in every way, and yet he chose the guy that was going to betray him after praying about it for an entire evening, which makes me feel a lot better about my prayer life, about how many times I've swung and missed. I'm like, oh, Jesus, you picked Judas. So the question is, did he make a mistake? Or was Jesus, as I've heard it taught before, maybe Jesus, he knew the prophecies. He was just picking a guy that he knew was going to fulfill prophecy. But then I'd ask you this, why, if he was just simply picking a guy that he knew was going to fulfill prophecy, why did he sit him at the seat of honor? 
Why did he, skipping ahead into next week's message into verse 50, as Judas comes to actually betray Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in verse 50, this is Jesus' reply to Judas. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? He refers to him as friend. And I would submit to you is that Jesus picked Judas because he loved Judas. No more complicated than that. He loved Judas so much that even at the very end, even at the Garden of Gethsemane, even as he's looking in that man's eye, he is hoping for Judas for repentance. He is giving him another opportunity. Friend, you got your chance. Turn from this moment. Repent right now. And so what we see is as we look upon others and as we more often look upon ourselves, what do we see? We see a betrayer, a liar, a deceiver, a cheater. That's at least the list I go through with me. <laughs> and what Jesus sees is a friend. Now in verse 26, But as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. But I say to you that I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we see that this Passover feast is now giving way to the new covenant. All things are pointing to the fulfillment by the Lamb of God. But I find the order that Jesus uh, does this interesting because it would make more sense to me in my brain if he would have said, take this cup, drink this, this is my blood, I want you to be cleansed. And then you can take the bread of life and you can partake of it after you've been cleansed. Because if not, I give you my body, you're just going to defile it. I mean, you, you all are a bunch of wicked people. But interestingly enough, what Jesus does is he first says, I want you to take my body. I want you to take and partake with me. I want you to be a part of me. I want you to come, in other words, just as you are, right here, right now. Whatever jacked up mess you got going on, I want it in here with me. Bring it in. And then he says, I want to give you the cup. Then he gives the blood to actually cleanse us from the inside out. You see, so many times we think, I've got to get it all together before I can come to church. Like, I'm a hot mess this week. There ain't no way I can go in there. I, I cannot partake with the body unless I get myself cleaned up from the inside out. But that's completely the opposite. What Jesus says is, I want you to come to me not through uh, perspiration, but through impartation. I want to actually come and dwell within you and clean you up. And what we want to do, especially in America, because we like to work for everything, is we want to work our tail off to get it all cleaned up so that we can come to him. And Jesus will have none of it. Because we cannot work enough, we cannot do enough, we cannot sweat enough in order to actually be a part of his body. We have to just simply receive. And that's hard for us. That's difficult for us to receive something that we have not earned. But the reality is what Paul says, the only hope that you have, it's Christ in you. Colossians 1.27 says it's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. 
That's what you and I have to actually rely upon, that it's, this is true love. True love actually looks like him loving me in spite of me. Him loving me just how I stand, not putting lists of requirements and regulations upon me, but just simply because he loves me. Now then finally in verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I love the way Jesus wrapped up dinner. What started with praise ends with praise. It bookends for us perfectly today. And Jesus' encouragement is, what are we to do? What are we to do with this, that he loves me so much he'd give me his body before he ever even cleansed me, before he ever even completely cleaned me up? What am I to do with that? And what Jesus says is, you should just worship. <laughs> you should just look at your situation and go, God, you're so stinking good to me. This is amazing. And so this is his encouragement today. And, and through this new covenant, through this new relationship that he's actually allowed us to partake in, this cleansing from the inside out, Hebrews 4.16 says, is we now, believe it or not, we now have access to come boldly to the throne of grace. I'm going to read that for you because it's worth us going there one last spot. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is the promise of the new covenant, that we may come boldly to the throne of grace, receiving mercy. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. And find grace. Grace is getting what I don't deserve to help in the time of need. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity to come boldly to your throne of grace. Father, it is amazing to see your goodness and to see your greatness in our lives. And so many times, we just come away with the feeling of not deserving any of this uh, to the point where we wonder, what do we do? <laughs> what, what do we even do with this much grace? What do we even do with this kind of crazy mercy? But your encouragement is right here in verse 30 just worship. And so, Father, today, I pray that as a people, we would be a people that would worship, even as a small body of Christ, that we would be able to lay our head back. We're not comfortable maybe with our hands up, but just head back, singing to you, to truly worship, to truly honor you, to truly want to be a part of your kingdom, Lord. Father, help us to be a people that worships. We're going to get a lot of things wrong, Lord. We're going to mess up a bunch of stuff. But thank you for your blood that cleanses us from the inside out. Thank you for your desire to worship with us. And so, Father, please help us to be a people that can worship together freely, knowing that you've done all the work. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you please stand?
working in this place I worship you I worship you Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are You are here, touching every heart I worship you I worship you. You are here, healing every heart. I worship you. I worship you. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. make miracle working, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are here, turning lives around. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, mending every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are way bigger, miracle worker, promise light in the darkness. My God, that is who. And the church says, amen. Thank you guys so much for coming out this morning. A reminder, we got lunch downstairs, so please uh, stick around and enjoy lunch together. Enjoy some fellowship. If you need prayer for any reason whatsoever, I'll be hanging around up front. Happy to have the opportunity to pray with you. Uh, encourage you guys this week to worship. Even if you're not comfortable in a corporate setting, try it in your car by yourself. The people next to you will think you're a total weirdo, but you don't know them. And so just keep on letting it rip. So I just want to encourage you guys to let some worship happen in your life. As you do, uh, you will see amazing things begin to take place uh, in your family and in your lives. God bless you guys. Have a great week.